When D.L. Moody died, there was a lot of crisis in the church because people said, what will we do with D.L. Moody gone? He was the spokesman for the church. He was the great evangelist of that time. And people thought, what's, what's could possibly replace D.L. Moody? Not knowing that at that time, uh, some farmers were getting married in North Carolina, and uh, they would have a little boy named Billy Graham. And uh, he did all right, didn't he? You know, I, I look out whenever I see our students here or in Wilmore or in Memphis, I often believe that, and I do believe, that our students, you are an answer to someone's prayer. And that's why we are so delighted about this whole enterprise of theological education and what we're, we're doing here. The text that was read for us is the text for Lent, and I, uh, my Bible seems to be falling apart here. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to leave this part behind. I, I, uh, I think I have between Mark 1 and Romans 5, but I... <laughs> yeah, I know, Pontinism. But I, I trust you, I believe the whole thing, but I think it's falling apart, so... I might just carry this part. Just pretend this is all here. It, it, it's all here. It's all here, okay? I'm sorry. I just, uh, it's been a rough trip down to Orlando. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is the real canonical version. Uh, but in Luke 4, praise God, at least, at least the whole text fell out in one piece. But um, in Luke 4, this is actually the assigned reading in the church for the beginning of Lent. Now, normally you think that Lent, since it follows the, the public ministry of Christ, it might push us into the passion, but actually it insightfully brings us back to before Jesus even began his public ministry. And it begins with the first encounter of Satan in the New Testament. And it's actually helpful, especially those preparing for ministry, to think about the testing that went on prior to Christ launching his public ministry. Uh, what God approves, he pr first proves. And this happens in this passage that is before us. We're told, as you heard so beautifully read, that this was a, a he was tempted for 40 days in the desert. Of course, instantly that word, the phrase 40 days, would call to mind the, the, the 40 days of the wilderness wandering, right? Of, of, of Moses and the children of Israel. Jesus is recapitulating the whole history of Israel and his ministry, and it starts here. He's the second Adam. He's the, the new, new Israel, the second Moses, and so forth. And so here Jesus, were, and we're told a bit troubling that the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now Jesus would teach us to pray later, lead us not into temptation, because he knew what it was like to be brought into temptation. And sometimes, though we pray that, we still experience that. And the church fathers, I think, were correct uh, when they made the point that though Jesus has three temptations highlighted in the New Testament, it does not, should not take it to mean, or you should take it to mean, that Jesus was had three temptations during the 40 days. But rather, these temptations are, in fact, representative of all the temptations that we as the human race face. In some ways, you might conceive it this way, that, that just as Christ would later bear the sins of the whole world at the cross, here at the outset of his ministry, 
He is bearing the temptations of all of us. That's why the title, I don't think you have the title before you, but the title of the sermon is actually uh, The Three Temptations of Us All. Because Jesus, as our co-regent, is already there bearing these temptations for us. He is driven, in fact, Mark's gospel even more actually uses the word ekbalo. He is actually driven out into the desert as part of God's plan, God's purpose. Uh, that he, is, he takes this direct confrontation with, with the evil one. And so it reminds us, you know, when Lent, when we go into Lent, we are going into uh, a desert. And every year the Lord calls the church to go back into the desert. It's a time where we remember what is most important in our lives. It's, it's the deserts where you have no distractions. Uh, Thomas Friedman, in one of his uh, books, uh, he wrote these books like, you know, The World is Flat, and I love the latest one, uh, the, um, Thank You for Being Late. These are amazing books. But at one point, one of his books, he was trying to describe the, the digital generation, and he called it, uh, he described it as continuous partial attention. All right, continuous, within a generation of continuous partial attention. So it's, we live probably more than any other generation with a constant barrage of distractions. And so going into the desert, the desert is a place of no distraction, isn't it? It's a place of, of focus. And Lent is meant to be a time where we let all other considerations aside, stripping away everything else, that what is truly found fundamental might, might appear, reappear. And so Jesus goes into the desert, and uh, as I said, I think these are representative temptations for all of us. I want to look at these because actually I don't think that most people would ever experience any of these particular temptations. I understand that apparently Simon Stylites was tempted to turn stones into bread, but he's the last one I can think of. Uh, Alexander the Great maybe was tempted to have all the kings of the world, but that wasn't one that came to me recently. But yet, you'll, when you look at these more deeply, you realize actually these are the temptations that are actually coming to all of us at their root. The first temptation, he says, Evel said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, this is the basic temptation about our natural desire to have our physical needs met. You might summarize it as, you know, food, drink, sex. I mean, to put it very bluntly, the, the kind of basic needs of humanity. And all three of those are wonderful and good things. They're all gifts from God. Bread is a gift from God. We can't live without it. The, the problem with this, this whole category of things that has so much shipwrecked people is when we make it our focus, we make it our something that drives our life rather than doing the will of God. And so Jesus in this temptation is really calling us to recognize all of our physical needs. We're all driven by needs, employment needs, financial needs. We think about pension plans and health care, all these things that consume us. He's, I'll take care of those things. Focus on doing the will of God. That's the challenge before all of us. And Lent's a time to purge. That's why we fast during Lent. That's why you fast during all the year. Because it helps us remember us what is most important for our lives. The second, second uh, temptation, 
uh, he actually takes Jesus and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, I always had this secret hope that he showed them all the kingdoms except for the United States of America. Surely, that we don't, our, our nation doesn't belong to the devil. The devil actually says in the text, uh, he takes him up, he says, um, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant, and he said, I will give you all their authority for it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. This is really a very troubling text for the kind of utter rebuke of the whole political, geopolitical process in the world. Where we think, somehow or another, if we just turn these knobs, then the, the political system will work and they'll solve our problems and we'll get things done. Washington, D.C. will solve everything if we can just elect the right person. This is actually a very, very troubling kind of uh, devastating critique of the world of worldly power, the limits of worldly power. Now, think about it. We, we are all tempted in various ways. This is the whole temptation for name, for, for power, for position. Where we think, so another, if we had this position, or if we had this name, or this title, or this degree, or whatever, that that would somehow another enable us to get things done. But Jesus says, no, no. It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And finally, the Satan learns how to get things done, and so he takes Jesus to the high temple and he quotes scripture. The devil's very good at quoting scripture. You know, in the early church, when they had the big battle with the Battle of the Arians, you know, the Apostles' Creed was developed as you know, every phrase the Apostles' Creed is found in scripture. That's the first, you know, formal kind of big creed. And the Arians were so good at quoting scripture, they finally had to say, okay, we're going to go to the Nicene Creed. We're going to develop one that's a little more precise, more careful, because uh, people can quote scripture. The devil quotes scripture. He quotes these texts about the angels guarding you and all that, and lifting up your hands. And Jesus answered and says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This quotation from Psalm 91. This is actually the, the temptation for us, and this is particularly strong on all of us, that we want to make God's word say what we want it to say rather than what it actually says. We are really good at that. Oh, I know it says this, but really it means that. <laughs> really? So many times we find ourselves crafting God's word rather than letting God's word speak in judgment against us and trouble us. The word of God should trouble you when you read it because it sets us all into bankruptcy before God. Well, to go through Lent, um, everybody needs... Uh, we all need mentors, don't we? We need mentors to go through Lent. And I want to just suggest, as we bring this to a close, I want to provide a possible mentor for you. I don't know about you, but some of my greatest mentors are people that are long gone. That's why I love church history. You get to meet people who can mentor you. Because we need mentors, all kinds of mentors in our lives, including those who've gone before us. And I want to print out there the mentor of, for Lent, this Lent for us as a community, Catherine of Siena. Now, I don't know if you know her, many of you of course do, but she was born in 1347. And by the way, uh, for ladies, she was the 24th of 25 children. Can we just stop and thank God for her mother? 
She's the 24th of 25 children. And when Catherine Siena was seven years old, she had a vision of Jesus Christ. And she felt called to completely consecrate her life to Jesus. Now, I want to just put you back into the 14th century for a minute and as a woman in the 14th century. If you were a woman in the 14th century and you felt called by God to enter into ministry, you had one option. There was only one lane that you could drive in. And that lane, lane was to become a cloistered nun. That meant you would enter into the monastery, you would renounce uh, your life, poverty, chastity, obedience, you would not get married, and you would live separate from the world as a cloistered nun. Well, Catherine Siena, uh, she had a different idea. Now, by the way, just to be clear on what, what she's known today, today, Catherine Siena is known by, in both the Roman Catholic tradition and the Anglican tradition, she is known as a doctor of the church. She's the first female to ever be named a doctor of the church. Now, doctor of the church are people like Thomas Aquinas. I mean, these huge, massive figures, not that many of them. There's just like a dozen of them in the history of the world. And she, is a, she was uneducated. So to become a doctor of the church is an enormous, enormous, by the sheer force of her life. She became, she's actually, by the way, the co-patron saint of the city of Rome, which would not be easily, along with St. Francis of Assisi, or the, or the country of Italy. Anyway, so here she is, a young, young person, and she wants to, she, her vision for ministry is to be totally dedicated to God in the world, not out of the world. That was the difference. Now, that's the point I want to make with this text. Lent was not meant to be, in this 40 days, was not meant to keep Jesus cloistered from the world, but prepare him to enter into it. The very point you made, actually, beautifully in your introduction the, the whole point, we live in a world of pain. She wanted to be in that pain. Now, let's also remember what was happening at her time. She was born and raised at the height, you might say the, the depth, if you, probably the better word, of the, the Great Plague. Now, the Great Plague uh, killed about 200 million people. It's one of the few times where the population of the world as a whole actually declined over a century's time. Can you imagine? Now, doctors now know, uh, epidemiologists, that this was a, you know, Bacchilis uh, virus. It was rat-borne. They know all about it. They know, they can analyze. They know exactly what happened. There's actually several of these plagues that happened in, in, in the Middle Ages. But no one knew that at the time. Europe itself lost over 100 million people. It originated in China, came around the Silk Route, and it came up into Europe. So here's Europe where Entire families, think about it, this is like what happened here in Florida, where you wake up one morning, you know, and your family's normal, and that day, your daughter gets killed and shot. It felt like that. There were entire families where all six children would be dead in a week, happened all the time, actually. No one knew why. There was no, no, nobody explained why. It was pain and suffering at every turn. A hundred million people died. Think about it. Catherine lived in all of that. And she gave herself to point herself into the pain of all that suffering in an amazing way. And she was a great mystic and became, as I said, the doctor of the church.
And by the way, if you ever look at her writings, you can Google her books and her writings, her letters, and her conversation with Jesus are truly remarkable. But there's three things about her life I want to just mention in closing that are so important for us and for this text. First of all, Catherine Siena, she norms the spiritual world. All of her interactions and all of her writings assume that the spiritual world is more alive to her than anything she's seen around her. To, look, to walk in the world that we live in, we need a very acute realization of the spiritual world and how God is working in the midst of all of this. Secondly, she learned that the greatest ascent, it's one of her great insights, the greatest ascent into the presence of God was found in the greatest descent into human pain and suffering. She understood that if you really want to get close to God, you would go deep into the pain of people because there you find the crucified one. That's what Lent's all about. Uh, she, she got that. And finally, she lived with a single-minded focus on Christ in all that she did. You know, of course, the famous liturgy of the church is probably the most famous liturgy where you say, comes originally from 2 Corinthians 13, um, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Probably one of the most famous liturgical lines in the history of the church, been used since the early church. Well, naturally, as a, as a well-known person, she used this phrase a lot, but she used to say it this way. In the name of the Father, and of thee, and of the Holy Spirit. He would say to her, why do you say in the name of the Father, and of thee, and of the Holy Spirit, and of the Son? And Catherine used to say, because he's right there. And the Father, and, and you, you know, you're right here, and the Holy Spirit. She was so it cultivated the presence of Christ so profoundly in her life. That's also what Lent is about. Lent is, uh, you know, to read this passage, Jesus having a conversation with the devil, it sounds so removed from us. Here's someone who can help us to norm the spiritual world, to realize that uh, following Christ is not an escape from the world. It's entering into the world's pain and suffering. Because Jesus did not come primarily to be a teacher, though he was the greatest of all. He didn't come primarily to feed the world bread, though he did. He ultimately came to die on the cross. He's the crucified Savior. That's the paradigm that guides us and leads us. We are those who are in the cruciform. We, we follow a crucified Savior. And I, I believe Catherine Siena might just be a great guide for us uh, during these 40 days. Let us pray. Lord, as we remember and see even today, you turn ordinary bread into that great spiritual host. May you turn our lives as we walk through the pain of this world and walk in the world. May we see your presence and your glory and your workings and all that you do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.